Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Uh, I want to show you a video here in just a moment from uh, the Bible Project, and we've showed one before. This is going to be kind of the core uh, curriculum, if you will, that our juniors will be using. These guys have produced some really phenomenal, uh, honestly, like scholarly, theological level videos that are communicated in a way somebody like me can understand. And so it's really helpful. I got to spend time, I had mentioned with the guy that that made the video I'm going to show you now before it was actually a video. He was just on the whiteboard putting this together and it absolutely blew my mind. Um, So the first reason I want to show it to you is because it's cool for us just to have a perspective. We don't want to be a bunch of isolated rooms and divisions and age groups and stages of life. Even if you look at our practice groups through our uh, faithful citizenship practice, they're not categorized that way. We think there's so much value and diversity. And so part of that, I want to give you a window into what's going on 100 yards that way. But the other thing I want to do is show this video because honestly, it provides such a good foundation for the next seven weeks uh, of our faithful citizenship practice. So this video is about five minutes. Go ahead and uh, check it out. So if you lived in ancient Israel, one of the most important places was the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a sacred tent that the Israelites carried as they journeyed to the promised land. And it was sacred because it's where the heavenly presence of Israel's God lived on earth. And the tabernacle had an important design to show just how special it was. There's the outer courtyard, then an entry room into the tent, and it leads into the center of the tabernacle, the Holy of Holies, God's personal throne room, and it's guarded by these heavenly hybrid creatures called cherubim. Notice, the closer that you get to the center, the more sacred the space becomes. The people who work in the tabernacle are called priests, and they care for the sacred space, offer sacrifices on behalf of Israel, and announce God's blessing over the people. Yeah, these priests represent God to the people, and they represent the people to God. So think of both the tabernacle and the priests who work in it like gateways that link together heaven and earth. And this is why the tabernacle was eventually brought up to settle on a mountain, because mountains are where earth meets heaven. Now, one thing that's missing in this tabernacle that you would find in every other ancient holy space are idol images that physically represent the God. Oh, right. Israel's God explicitly commanded them to not make any idol images. And that's because in the Bible, all humanity is God's image. This is what we learn in the first pages of the Bible, where Adam and Eve, in Hebrew their names mean human and life, they're called God's image, which means they represent God in his holy space. And that holy space is a garden in a land called Eden. Yes, and the story is designed to show that Eden is the reality that the later tabernacle symbolized and pointed back to. For example, look close at the descriptions of Eden. There's the larger region on the land that's called Eden, but then within Eden, God plants a garden. And then in the center of that garden, God plants the tree of life. The design of Eden matches the tabernacle design. Yes. And there are details in the Eden story that are developed much later in the Bible showing how Eden is on a high mountain. Because they're in a place where earth meets heaven. Exactly. 
And God tells these humans to work and to keep the garden. These are the same words that are used later in the Bible to describe what priests do in the tabernacle. So Adam and Eve are God's image and are like priests working and worshiping in a type of heaven on earth temple. Yes, they represent creation before God. And as God's image, they represent God to all of creation. And they do all of this in this sacred space that's saturated with the life and presence of God. And so God tells them to rule creation on his behalf. They're like priests who embody God's heavenly wisdom and rule here on earth. You could call them royal priests. Exactly. Now, this whole setup, the royal priests in God's presence where there's abundance and life, in the book of Genesis, this is called God's blessing. But it doesn't last very long. No. Humanity is deceived by this rebellious creature. They're unsatisfied with being images of God, and so they make a grab at being God, ruling creation on their own terms. And so God exiles them from the garden. And God places Kerovim at the door of Eden to guard the way back in. This is tragic. Humanity has given up the role God made them for. But it's not the end. The rest of the biblical story is about God's mission to undo this tragedy so that humans can regain access to the heaven on earth place where they can finally become God's royal priests. It all begins with a promise that God makes to Adam and Eve that he will raise up one of their descendants to rule over and defeat that deceiver. God says that this coming descendant will strike the head of that deceiver, but also be struck by it. So this priestly figure will restore God's blessing by offering up his own life like a sacrifice. But this is still just a promise. Yes, and so in the next story, we find the next generation outside of Eden. Two brothers at the door of the garden are offering sacrifices to God, kind of like priests. Maybe God will accept these offerings and they can get back into Eden. But sadly, one brother, Cain, gets angry because God favors his brother Abel's sacrifice. And so Cain murders his own brother. Then Cain is exiled even further from Eden and from God's blessing. And over time, Cain's anger plunges humanity into widespread violence. back to uh, the, the video in just a moment. Every, uh, every Friday right now for the past, honestly, about three months, we've been trying something new as a family. We do this family movie night, and it's not just to be entertained. It's pretty intentional as this bridge. If you've been a part of our church for a little while, you've heard about this trellis thing we do, this structure for us, six commitments to help us grow and understand and find health in the way of Jesus, six practices. And one of the weirdest of those six is Sabbath. And Sabbath is brutally hard because everything in our culture is selling us to either never stop working, find something to worry about, typically so we buy something, um, or want other things. And so it is an exhausting, really challenging process to not work or worry or want, but instead to spend 24 hours of delighting in what you already have, part A, part B, and then trusting that God is capable of being God and good in the midst of those 24 hours that he actually can hold it together. And so every Friday, we have this bridge day is what I kind of think of it as, and it helps us connect from the work, the worries, and the wants, which there's plenty of, 
to enjoy these 24 hours. It takes something intentional. And so typically we'll make pizzas at home in the oven and then we'll pick a movie. And a, a couple Fridays ago, it was my turn to pick the movie. And I'd seen all of these advertisements for this movie called Luck or Lucky or something like that. And it looked really funny. I showed the kids the trailer and all of these terribly funny things happen to this poor girl because she's really unlucky. She makes food, it splatters everywhere. She trips over everything. My, my five-year-old son thought it was hysterical. So they thought it was gonna be a great movie night. The whole day, they're hyping up this movie to their mom, like it's their favorite movie ever. And they've only seen two minutes, but they're going, mom, this movie's great, you're gonna love it. So finally, we sit down on the couch, we're watching the movie, and in the first seven minutes, I'm getting that stare. If you're married, you know what that stare is. She's looking at me like, I could have done so much better. This is not good. And here's why. All of a sudden, in the first seven minutes, this movie did what about 90% of kids' movies do. And most of you probably are not aware of this. I was not aware of this for a long time. But about 90% of kids' movies have to do with adoption or being separated from your parents. About 90%, I kid you not. It's very, very challenging, actually, to think of more than three or four movies that are not about this. And so I never paid attention to that. Most of my kids do not pay attention to that until all of a sudden we adopted a child. And when she was four and five and six and seven and now eight, every time one of these 90% movies comes on and these questions are asked and a good story does what a good story does, it presents conflict. The conflict that is presented is the absence of, in this case, her parents. And you can watch through the little glass window into this little girl's heart all of these massive questions that no five, six, seven, or eight-year-old should have to process. But every single time we watch one of these 90% of the movies, she has to process her whole world. And that's not fair. And it's broken. And I hate it. And I love her, and I want what's best for her. But that's the reality in this moment. She's processing really deep things that she shouldn't have to yet. All the while, my goofy little five-year-old thinks it's the funniest thing in the world because some bad things are happening to this little girl in the movie. He doesn't recognize what's going on. My other uh, biological children don't have a clue. You know why? It's because they take for granted that we have family movie nights and mom and dad are sitting right by them and always have. They don't recognize what's being processed in this other little mind. They don't even know what they have. They don't even know what they couldn't have, but that's reality. The Bible tells a similar story, the scriptures. It's not a rule book. I've heard it called basic instructions before leaving earth. It is real far from that. That is far from accurate. It's actually the true story of the world in six parts, six stages. If you go to see a play, there's often an intermission or perhaps two in the middle separating the acts, the stages of the play. There's six parts to the story the scriptures tell. And today what we're gonna do is look at those six parts and then we're gonna kind of study and discuss and talk how God's presence engages with humanity differently and uniquely in each of those six. Here's the six. The first is creation. 
God's presence is with us, symbolized by this arrow down. The second is rebellion. The third is promise, God's motion to, to bring back what was. The fourth is the cross and redemption. The fifth is church. That's where we are. And the last is restoration. These are kind of six symbols to kind of ground us in the framework of the scriptures. This book is powerful and anything powerful is really dangerous because in the wrong hands, understood and misinterpreted in the wrong ways, it can and has done a lot of damage because people use it for something it's not. But if we embrace it, understanding these six, and God's intent is to tell us what is true of how he engages with us through each of those and what ultimately will happen in the end, that's the right, that's a healthy foundation. If you uh, signed up for a, a practice group, you will have mailed or received or something uh, this booklet for faithful citizenship, which we're, we're launching today. The groups will start next week. On page five, you'll kind of see the outline of these six things laid out for you. We'll walk through them one by one. The first is creation. The, the video described it a bit, but God creates a perfect, good world. It's not boring. It's not like my vegetable garden that has some vegetables and some bugs and the occasional bunny rabbit that now I really hate. It's different than that. If you really read a description of what this garden was like, it was more like this raw, ferocious national park. It's massive, filled with energy and potential. And Adam and Eve were built in God's image as creatives to go make something, harness something good out of everything that was like raw clay, to be like sculptors and make the world good, better, fun, enjoyable. They had opportunity and promise and potential and relationship. And in the midst of it all, we read in, in Genesis 3, 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord, Yahweh's his name, God, walking in the garden. They walked with God in creation. In creation, God's presence is experienced fully. You might actually say, I think the argument could be made that in creation, Adam and Eve actually take God's presence for granted. It's something they've known always. They don't know what it's like to not have his presence. They've never experienced the chasm and gap of not being with God and walking with God and intimately experiencing his presence holistically. That all changes, though, fairly quickly in rebellion. Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. We've talked about it, but that word cunning is so important because it's the same word used for wise in the wisdom literature of the scriptures. So the Bible itself is saying, say, is saying Satan is wise. He's knowledgeable. He is incredibly good at deceiving. The most cunning of all the animals comes up to the woman to Eve and he asks, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees in the garden, but about the fruit in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Then the woman saw, she trusts her, trusts her own sight, that the fruit was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she reaches out and grabs it. Now, I said that the scriptures tell the true story of the world. From God's perspective, not all the details, not the scientific perspective, but the relational one. In this moment, this is not an account about fruit, like apples are bad. This is the account of a master deceiver and manipulator violently attacking the trust that is built, has been built in a relationship. He is looking at this relationship between God and the good that his presence brings to Adam and Eve and the garden, which is a temple we saw in the video where God's presence was fully known, and he violently destroys the fabric of that trust. And the result is that heaven and earth are no longer married. In Genesis, in creation, there's this marriage of heaven and earth. Heaven is not defined by a location. You can't get a train ticket or a plane ride or get in your car and road trip to heaven. It's not a location. Heaven is defined by proximity to the presence of God. Wherever Jesus is, heaven will be there. And now heaven and earth, in essence, have been divorced, broken, separated. We continue to read one of the most devastating uh, verses and phrases in all of the scriptures. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, which used to be a good thing because they trusted one another at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid themselves from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Trust has been broken. Shame is now the driving force. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? And Adam says, I heard you in the garden. I heard you and my new response to you is fear. I was afraid, so I hid. That's new. It's a new relational dynamic because trust has been violently broken. Have you ever had a, a relationship with somebody that you deeply, intimately, vulnerably trusted, and that's broken? That's kind of what this is like. Though Adam and Eve did the breaking because Satan is very good at what he did, now the response to his goodness and love to the only one that can actually remedy and restore this situation is to hide from him. In rebellion, God's presence is cut off, and shame becomes this dark cloud separating humanity from God, this barrier where we no longer take for granted the presence of God. We no longer have it. This is the second act, the second portion of the scriptures, and we're only through three chapters. I promise the next four somehow will not take as long as those three chapters did. Third is promise. After this separation and shame, everything has changed. Now God no longer, his presence is given freely and experienced. At this point, we see throughout the scriptures that God's presence is actually limited to mere appearances and visitations. We'll, we'll read this beginning in Genesis 12 when God actually makes a promise to Abraham. Genesis 12, 7, then the Lord, what, appeared do you know what that means? It means he was not there. 
His presence was not felt and known. They weren't having conversations. God was absent until he appeared. Rebellion and shame have driven a wedge between God and man. Then God makes a promise. I will give this land to your offspring. You will be a blessing, that blessing that the video referred to, to all nations, and by you, restoration will happen. But until then, appearances, visits, really external, isolated moments of God's presence, and they quickly pass. In Genesis 17, we read something similar. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. There was a long gap. God comes and God goes. Abraham does not get to access the spirit of God and his presence frequently. There's these moments of quiet. The next chapter is the same. Then the Lord appeared, which means he wasn't there. One more time, and God makes another promise. After the rebellion and the first part of the promise for Abraham, for his son and his son, and then this family that grows, God only appears and visits. What Adam and Eve took for granted is long gone. There's just these moments and blips where God comes back for a short time. If you've been with us the last few months, we've been studying the book of Exodus. We finally got to Exodus chapter 20, and that's actually where all of this changes. There must be a flash flood. Let's look. (laughs) Not yet for me. That must be like all the AT&T people know there's a flash flood. Verizon will happen later. Everything changes in Exodus 20. God is moving pretty powerfully and miraculously. He's saved his people, redeemed them from Egypt in, in, in mighty powerful ways. They're now in the desert, and he's going to establish something new. It's actually something old, renewed. It's the tabernacle. Like the garden was a temple of which Adam and Eve would be priests. Now the tabernacle is a temple, a dwelling place for God's presence. And there would be priests to man this. We read about it in Leviticus 26, I believe. It says this, I will place my residence among you and I will not reject you. I will walk among you and be your God and you will be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt so that you would no longer be their slaves. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to live in freedom. Can we go back to verse 12 real quick? I will walk among you and be your God. How similar does that sound to then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden? There's been a separation, a break. Shame has caused hiding. But it's actually the same Hebrew verb form used in Genesis 3.8 as Leviticus 26 here. There's this pretty masterful literary moment where Moses, the author of, of both of these portions of the scriptures, is saying there's a return to that walking. God's presence and dwelling place is now with the people. It's not isolated appearances and visitations now. God is there. Now God is near to all of his people, but there is a catch. Inside of the tabernacle, which is basically a a portable temple, there's layers. The video showed this. It's the outer court, the inner court, eventually the Holy of Holies, where God's presence is. And only one man gets to go in there one time a year. So while they're near to God's presence, while they get to see his presence work and move for their family and this nation, they do not themselves get to experience God's presence. It's almost like this reverse 
reverse prison of sorts. God's presence is contained, and that's a gift. It's there, but it's not fully known. God's presence shows up in in pretty phenomenal ways in the book of Exodus. Uh, Amongst the 66 books of the Bible, I would argue Exodus is the most entertaining. There's so many, oh, there it is. I still don't have it, wow. Apparently I don't matter for floods. There's seas that are separated. There's wars that are fought, famines that are, that are brought. Kings are convinced by God to do certain things they never would have done before. It is really entertaining and action-packed. And then dead in the middle of Exodus, you will find the most 13, maybe not the most, but dang close to the most 13 boring chapters you can read in a book. Like if you're having trouble sleeping Reading about the tabernacle in Exodus for 13 chapters will help. It could be prescribed. It's pretty bad. And if you think about it, when the book of Exodus was written, people, not everybody read. They didn't have a printing press that could pass this along. So the way that this text was passed along to the community to know how God would engage with them and his presence would be given was audibly. And so a father would sit his family down and he would tell this account. It would be passed down from one generation to the next. And it would be incredible. All the kids, you can kind of picture them around a campfire or whatever at night as dad is telling the story of war and humanity heroes and miracles and and natural disasters performed by God to save his people. And then they get to this part and you'd think all the kids would fall asleep. Like, why is this here? This is kind of dull. But I don't think that's what happened because they recognized how significant it was after all this time that God would dwell among them. I love what Michael Goheen and and Craig Bartholomew in their book, The Drama of Scripture, say about this. They say nearly a third of Exodus is taken up with the detailed plans for the tabernacle. And then these details are related as it is actually being built. These exhaustive details make an important point. Such a residence cannot be taken lightly. God himself is coming to live among his people, and it is worth pausing to look over the shape and nature of his official Residence. There's progress in this promise. God is made available in a new way. Not fully. Not everybody gets to experience this, but at least God is near, and that is significant. Fast forward now thousands of years to Matthew chapter 27, if you want to turn there. Jesus is taught. People are starting to sense that the presence of God is making a new and impactful return. And then we in in churches often have this symbol, right? This cross. And it's significant. And it means so much. And it's about this account. I'll begin to read in verse 45 of Matthew chapter 27. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the whole land. As Jesus is hanging on the cross about three in the afternoon, he cries out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Notice this. Jesus has never been without the presence of the Father. The anguish in his cry in this moment is because he's actually making an exchange so that we can be returned to the presence of the Father. He is experiencing life without. Jesus understood something about the presence of God, too. It's not merely spiritual. 
Wherever the presence goes, whatever its light touches, there's healing physically, spiritually, emotionally, from trauma, from abuse. There's health and growth and art and cultivation. Everything that is good comes from the source of God's presence, and nothing that is good came from anywhere else but God's presence. And so Jesus cries out in misery because he no longer has that. Verse 47, when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, fixed it on a reed, and offered him a drink. But the rest said, let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Verse 50, Jesus shouted again with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Suddenly, the curtain of the sanctuary was split in two from top to bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split. The tombs were all also opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and they came out of the tombs after his resurrection and entered the holy city and appeared to many. By the way, if you were with us last week, this is similar to the ceremony of what happens on Mount Sinai as Moses is leading this people to the promised land. Verse 54, when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they were terrified and said, this man really was God's son. Eden, this garden, is a temple. And in creation, we as humanity, Adam and Eve, experienced God's presence fully, but probably took it for granted. And rebellion, shame drives this wedge in between and God's presence is not known and experienced for the first time. And promise, it's restored partially in this portable temple called the tabernacle where God is isolated now, not just to visitations and appearances, but a place, a dwelling, a residence, a sanctuary among his people. Though not everybody gets to experience it, they just know it's there. Another temple, another set of priests. The curtain that is torn is in this temple. It's of the Holy of Holies. It's in this moment that this reverse prison of sorts experiences freedom. And the presence of God, I picture it rushing out like a flash flood, ironically, like our phones, except for me. And in the midst of it, people for the first time in thousands of years experience the presence of God again. It's felt, it's known by people who didn't even believe. They couldn't argue with this moment. Everything's changing. In redemption, the presence of God, his spirit moves from messengers and moments, from merely visiting and appearing, from being isolated in one dwelling in one place at one time, to being accessible to all of humanity. And that's the biggest shift we've seen yet. Continue now to the church, the fifth symbol, the fifth, the fifth portion of the story the scriptures tell of our world, and that's where we're at. So this is how we can engage with the presence of God. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20 describes it. Paul's writing to a church in Corinth, a, a church of people just like us, and here's what he says. Don't you know that your body is a sanctuary? Depending on the translation you read, it's gonna either say sanctuary or dwelling place or temple, just like the tabernacle, just like Eden was. Don't you know? You might even be able to say, or do you take for granted 
that your body is a sanctuary, a dwelling place, a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, for you were bought at a price. That was the anguish, scream, and cry of Jesus. Therefore, glorify God in your body. We went from the full presence, walking with God in the garden, to shame and not walking, hiding from God, to isolated moments on his terms and visits to one dwelling place and one place at one time, now there's access. We can choose to embrace experiencing God's presence by the power of the Spirit because of Jesus' love. For the church, we have personal access to the presence of God in this very moment. There's not one of you that does not have that opportunity. We'll come back to that in a minute. Lastly, restoration. Our church is named after this. If you have a Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 21. This is the end, and it's not a picture of us all flying away. It's a picture of Jesus coming down to reign on earth as king. One of the most significant misconceptions that we have about the scriptures and the Bible is that it all burns and we fly away. God didn't mess up when he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. In the garden, earth is his plan, and Jesus will reign on earth as king and make things all the way it was meant to be. We read about it here in verse 3. John, the prophet, is, is seeing this vision of what is to become. He says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's, here it is, this word, dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people. Sound familiar? And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. We fast forward to verse 22. John continues to describe what he sees. I did not see a sanctuary, dwelling place, temple in this city, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary, dwelling place, temple. Eden has been extended into all of the world. The whole world is now his temple, his dwelling place. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because God's glory illuminates it. Just like the sun touches every part when you can look down and see the rays of the sun, God's spirit will not miss touching, healing, restoring, bringing good and cultivation and the best to every part of the earth. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the lamb. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In restoration, Broken stories are made beautiful because the presence of God is fully unleashed. We're not there. Yet we still have access to his presence now. I can't wait for that day. That sounds good. Yet we have access that so many did not have for so long. There's nothing that can replace the actual presence of a loved one. If you've experienced the loss of a loved one, maybe you've experienced that feeling of just wanting to have one more conversation, to learn one more thing, to to be able to say what you needed to say that you never had the opportunity to say, I forgive you, I love you, I'm sorry, whatever it was. 
There's also power maybe in having a recording of that voice or something they wrote or a text message. It's a part of them. It's communication, but it does not replace their presence. You can watch a, a video of a family member or somebody laughing deeply, and it looks fun and enjoyable, and you might laugh because of the video, but that's nowhere near the same as sharing laughter in the moment with a group. If you're going through something tragic, you might receive a phone call from someone you love that cares and is concerned, and they reach out to you and give you advice and comfort over the phone, but that's nowhere near the embrace of a hug from that person in person. Still value, but it's nowhere near the same. Nothing can replace the presence of somebody. Ironically, we live in a world that is continuously creating new ways for us not to have to be in the presence and the actual presence of people we love. A lot of helpful tools from a distance, but actually we're devaluing, I think, a human need God created in us to be present with people. Go back to family movie night on Saturdays for the Sabbath. My kids have different perspectives. Some take for granted what they have on that night. One doesn't. Which will we be? We're starting a, a practice of what it means to be faithful citizens of King Jesus, first and foremost, and secondarily of Prescott and its greater area or whatever area you call home. God calls us to both, by the way. And the very first step to do that well, to follow Jesus and the everyday stuff of life in this way, is to not take for granted the access we have to God's presence today. And you have that. Let's pray. God, it is overwhelming to think that you are right here with us. But it's not fake, it's not pretend, it's not a distant hope, it is actual reality in this moment. God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to know you now. God, for those of us that have had the privilege of knowing you, may you expand that and allow it to grow deeper. For those in this room that haven't, may you give them an experience of your presence today in this moment. Open their eyes so they may know you. You're the foundation. Your presence is good. May it touch every part of our lives, not just the spiritual all and lead us. You are the king and we worship you together as we follow you in our city streets and neighborhoods and businesses. May you be known, may your kingdom come, may your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.